Well, welcome to Summit. My name is Kaylee Newkirk, and I'm the regroup director here, and I just want to join the team in thanking you for bringing the church into this room today. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, you have stumbled upon Summit on a regroup Sunday service, which is the one week each year that we take to celebrate the life change and transformation that so many of us have experienced through this particular style of uh, spiritual formation, myself included. So we want to celebrate this as a family, and it's also a wonderful opportunity to invite new people into the process. So the teaching that you'll hear tonight is very similar to what you would get at a regroup service as a preview to you. So we've officially tricked you into coming at least once, I think. So today we're going to spend some time talking about boundaries, and we're going to do that by looking at a text in Deuteronomy, because regroup knows how to have a good time. <laughs> boundaries get a bad reputation, we hear the, the word boundaries and we immediately think of something that restricts our freedom. And while that is technically true, I think we can all imagine at least one instance in our lives when we wish our freedoms would have been a little bit more restricted. I traveled to Guatemala the year after I graduated to study Spanish, and I am now fluent in at least seven words. My mom, who was graciously paying for that trip, started to research some of the dangers that I might encounter while traveling. The school I was going to was in the city of Quetzaltenango, also called Shela, and it was about a four-hour drive from Guatemala City, where I was flying into, to Shela. And one of the dangers that she discovered in her research was that the tourist buses often got robbed, because the thieves thought that anyone on a tourist bus would naturally have a lot of money. So her response to this potential danger was to book me passage on a chicken bus from Guatemala City to Shela. And when I say chicken bus, I literally mean a bus full of chickens. They were everywhere. There were chickens all over the seats. If there had been seats, but there weren't, there were just these unupholstered metal frames so as to better, more efficiently stack your chickens in their cages. And Shela is at a high altitude, so as soon as you leave the city, it's basically this spiraling road all the way up to the top of a mountain. And it's not what you might call modern or paved. There was no guardrail between us and this alarmingly steep cliff at the edge of the road. And, and, and our driver, I don't know like, if he had to go to the bathroom or what, but he is just like Tokyo drifting it up this mountain at 70,000 miles per hour. It was terrifying. And I remember clinging to one of those metal frames as you know, our careening bus is knocking pebbles into the abyss and just thinking to myself, please take me back to where the people get robbed. <laughs> as much as we Americans don't love having our freedoms restricted. There are moments when boundaries can literally save our lives. In this passage we'll be looking at in Deuteronomy, we're joining Israel at a critical moment in her journey with God. The Israelites are on the bank of the Jordan River. They're about to step out of the wilderness, this place that they've been wandering for 40 years, and step foot into the promised land, the land of milk and honey the land that was promised to them nearly 400 years ago in a covenant between God and Abraham, their forefather. But this land they're about to enter has some current occupants, the Canaanites, the descendants of Ham. And while Israel is called to serve Yahweh, the one true God, as their source of every blessing, the Canaanites have many, many gods, gods for every different blessing, Molech, god of fire, Resheph, god of plague, Yam, god of the sea, Jeff, the god of biscuits, Hank, the god of potty training. Those last two were from the Apocrypha. <laughs> the point is, is that if one were looking for something to worship, Canaan was the land of opportunity. 
So if you have your scriptures, you can open up to Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 11. I want to make a a couple of tedious contextual notes that will interest four of you, but I think it will be helpful for us um, in taking this text seriously as we interact with it. The, the, The English title Deuteronomy is derived from the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 17, 18, which refers to a copy of the law. And there is a lot of exodus in Deuteronomy, but uh, the, the more appropriate name for it probably comes from what it's called in the Hebrew canon. And the title of that in the Hebrew canon is just the first line of the book, which in Hebrew says, these are the words. And the Israelites would have been really familiar uh, with this language. It isn't really a copy of the law, although, again, Exodus is present in it. It's actually an account of covenant renewal. The the book of Deuteronomy is written in the style of the suzerain vassal treaties of the ancient Near East, which is basically a fancy way of saying that a stronger state has promised protection to a weaker state in exchange for loyalty to a covenant. And so the people would know about these treaties, and, and these treaties often opened with the line, these are the words. So while the language of the text might sound dramatic to us, God is actually just speaking to the Israelites in a way that they are sure to understand. And these treaties follow a pattern. I'm not gonna go point for point because it's tedious, um, but uh, what, what you need to know is that in there, there would be general and then detailed stipulations on how to be loyal to the covenant. And then there would have been, that would have been followed by a list of blessings for covenant loyalty and a list of curses for disloyalty. And so this is where we're popping our heads in. At the tail end of this section, this long list of blessings and curses, and we're, we're, we're listening in as Moses makes his kind of final summary plea. So starting in verse 11. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask. Who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, if you are drawn away and bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is God's word. As Zach pointed out last week, we are creatures made for worship. So in this book, God has laid out in great detail how the Israelites are to live once they enter into the promised land because while it is full of blessing, it is equally full of danger for a creature made for worship. He's giving them guidelines on how to live safely in a land of endless temptation and warnings of what will happen if they don't. And I know exactly what it's like to walk into a land of endless temptation every time I enter Target. Do you know that they sell matching baby and daddy sock sets? They do. I can walk in there with a $20 gift card and spend $150 and I only went in there for eggs. 
There's something, some, some incantation on every Nate Burkus candle votive that makes me believe that if I own it, I too can have friends who think everything I say is funny while we eat organic hummus next to the warm glow of their magics. But I know what's gonna happen when I get home and it's not magical. Rob's gonna look at my 16 Target bags and he's gonna ask me what I bought and there's no way he's gonna believe when I say it's all eggs. We all know what it's like to live in, an, in a land of endless temptation and to need some guidelines. God is not tyrannical. He didn't create the law for himself, forcing us through the steps of some intricately difficult dance for his own entertainment. He created the law to show us how to live well because in our land of endless temptation, we are hopelessly prone to living poorly. There's a, there's a phrase, it's not word for word each time, it's more like a cadence that, that occurs over and over again uh, in this entire book, and it usually starts with some form of obedience. Hear, acknowledge, obey, keep, observe, choose, faithfulness. And it ends with some version of so that it may go well with you, so that you will prosper, so you may enjoy long life, so that you may increase, be kept alive, so that you may live when I first read through this book from start to finish in preparation for today, I started to highlight this phrase in its various forms, and, and, I, and I, I just lost count. It's do dozens of times this phrase comes up again and again. It's over and over, and in, in the Bible, repetition indicates importance. There is something God wants us to understand from this, and he wants it very badly. He tells us over and over, if you live within the framework I've created for you, if you stay within these boundaries, it will go well with you. But if you walk outside of these boundaries, it will not end well. Now, I want to be careful here. This is, this is not the prosperity gospel that I'm trying to peddle. Don't misunderstand me. You can't force God to give you what you want just by being good and doing what he says. You can't use the discipline of fasting as a hunger strike. But I think God is reminding us that his creation will always work according to his design. In moments of great distress, I can be tempted to think that God is punishing me for my bad decisions. Because if that's the case, then he's the one with the power. He's the only one who can make the punishment stop. And if he doesn't, I guess he doesn't love me that much. But that's not true. For me, I, I mean, I know there's room for divine punishment and favor, but most of the time, God doesn't have to punish me for my bad behavior because the heavens and the earth do that well enough on their own. God's creation will always work according to God's design. If God indeed created and ordered the heavens and the earth, if he designed them with intentionality to thrive under specific circumstances, he created us in his own image to reflect his character and how we live in it, then it should be no surprise that the natural consequence of living according to our design would bring blessing. That integrity would mean a good reputation. That genuine kindness would mean a multitude of friends. And that generosity would mean freedom from bondage to our things. And it should be equally unsurprising that to live outside of our design would bring pain. That gossip would mean enemies. That lying would mean suspicion. God's creation will follow its design. It is not always supernatural punishment. If you never put oil in your car and your car breaks down, you wouldn't say that your car is punishing you. If you never walk your dog and he gets fat, you wouldn't say he's punishing you. And if you floss your teeth, you wouldn't say they were rewarding you by not getting cavities. When we live according to God's design, we experience the natural consequences of our faithfulness. And when we walk outside of it, we experience the natural consequences of our infidelity. He has set up 
a system that can't be cheated. Now I, wanna, I do want to pause for a second to speak briefly but directly to the people who are here and you are suffering through absolutely no fault of your own. Please don't hear me say that you are living outside of God's design and that's the reason that he hit you or the reason that she left. That is not what I'm saying. And on behalf of every person who has ever caused another person pain, I am so sorry. Because I know I have messed up this design for other people just as other people have messed it up for me. Sin, no matter its source, will always hurt people, even people living faithfully. Whether that sin is sin you've enacted or sin that's been enacted upon you, each of us affects all of us. Five months ago, I lost my brother Jason to an accidental drug overdose. And there are moments when I look into the eyes of his boys and I don't understand how God could let something like that happen. And sometimes I feel like it would be better for none of us to have existed than for us to have existed and for this thing to have happened to us. And I have spent my hours hating God. So I'm perhaps not the best person to answer for you why this is happening right now, but what, what I can tell you, what I've come to understand as I've allowed myself to walk through this difficult time tethered even ever so gingerly by a thread of faith, is that God's heart breaks with yours and with mine because sin affects him most of all. If he is actually our father, then God has lost a child with every final breath. He may be the only person in the entire world who hates death more than those who love the dying. So when I cannot find meaning in my grief, I can at least find comfort in my company, and I hope you will too. Other people's sins will always affect us, and our sins will never affect only us. One of the beautiful designs of Christianity is that all of us reflect the image of God better than any one of us can alone, but that design leaves room for great risk. In 1889, there was a small soap company in the city of Freiburg, Germany, uh, and they were working with a chemical substance they were using to make soap, and, and, and this molecule that they started with was called trithioacetone. And uh, the, it, it, it occurs naturally in roast beef. It's a fragrance, a flavoring, and the chemists at Whitehall Soap Company were attempting to chemically crack the trithioacetone into one of its component parts, thioacetone, which they wanted to use to make their soap. But when they succeeded, when the tiniest drop of thioacetone was produced, people in buildings quarter mile away began vomiting and fainting because of the smell. The aroma produced in this process, while not toxic, was referred to in one scientific journal as the stench of hell's dumpster. The odor was so foul, in fact, that it resulted in the evacuation of the entire city of Freiburg for fear that the smell was lethal. The purpose God's purpose for creating this framework, for making all these rules, was not so that Israel should, should just get into the promised land and live in peace and harmony. 
He crafted their laws so that when followed, the resulting effect was like a visual symphony at its peaking note. And he gave them this land as a stage so the whole world would be watching. The brilliance of God's purpose for Israel living within their design, this risky design, was that if they did, their lives would be so attractive to the rest of the world that the rest of the world would want to know why. The ethics of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, they, they form a kind of molecule of holiness for Israel. And their component parts, people, family units, society as a whole, bond together in such a way as to create something beautiful. That's why, that's why the, the, the Old Testament laws so fiercely uphold the virtues of society, of family, of individuals, because to break one of these bonds could take it from a fragrance to a stench. Each of us affects all of us. This is the purpose for every rule in the entire Christian faith. To create a bride of Christ who is so beautiful that she literally turns heads toward Jesus. I have set before you today life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you may live. I think it's easy for the, the modern reader to dismiss this as mere hyperbole, poetry that meant something too specific for its context for us to draw transcendent value, but I don't think it's hyperbole at all. I think when God sets before us the choice between life and death that he means more than having breath in our bodies, though he does not mean less than that. But I think he's trying to help us see that there is more to living than simply breathing and there is more to dying than simply not. We face the choice of life and death every day. Will we choose to be faithful to God who gives us life Will we be faithful to things that don't give us life back? We hear the whisper of the serpent in every temptation. You will not surely die, but his definition was a body without breath. It's a scheme to make us believe that if the danger is not imminent, it is not real. But the measure of life or death is more than a beating heart. Israel at this time was incredibly dependent upon the land and the water, uh, the, the rain that watered it. So we, I think, could also dismiss as antiquated superstition the reasons that the Israelites would bow their heads to foreign gods. Because we're intelligent modern people, we would not erect an Asherah pole to ensure our fertility. We wouldn't call on Baal to give us success. We wouldn't petition Maman to increase our wealth. But one need only look around to see that we still worship money sex, power. Only now we do so by name. In all our triumph over superstition, we are still idolaters. We have simply eliminated the middleman. You know what one of the sneakiest idols of our time is, I think? Happiness. I almost didn't marry my husband because I thought he wasn't funny. Don't judge me, Christians. To be fair, he was, <laughs> uh, and everyone else thought he was, and, and I do too. Um, but when we were dating, we discovered that we enjoyed very different types of humor. 
For example, uh, I am highly amused when someone makes a statement that could be interpreted two different ways and someone responds to the wrong interpretation. Uh, I texted my dad a picture of Christmas cookies and said, look, I made gingerbread men with the baby. And he texted, how much of the baby is left? <laughs> I think that junk's hilarious. <laughs> so apparently, I almost didn't marry my husband because he doesn't make corny jokes. I'm an idiot. But our differences didn't end there. Different things make us happy. He absolutely loves to go on adventures. I absolutely love to read about them in all the books. He, he took me to Colorado. He was on a work conference um, and wanted us to go uh, spelunking. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, the general idea is that you climb up into a crack of a boulder uh, you know, in the dark at night, armed only with a headlamp and the file of Galadriel. And in order to get to the crack, you have to like shimmy up this 15-foot plane of slippery rock into a hedge before you get on all fours and scamper into the dark. This is not my idea of a good time. He couldn't wait. One of our first epic fights was, was about whether or not it was okay for our friend Dan to make earrings for his girlfriend out of the little, the little paws of a dead squirrel. Uh, we, the only strength that we share on our strength finders is competition. If there's an opportunity for us to have a disagreement, we will find it. And so once we'd been together long enough that marriage seemed like the likely next step, I started asking God, is, is this right for me? We're so different. Is this your will for my life? But to my shame, what I meant when I asked the question, is this your will, was really... Is this what will make me happiest? Is this what I will enjoy most? No, this is not what I will enjoy most, and it's certainly not what he'll enjoy most. I'm no picnic, I live with me. And I hate to be the spoiler alert, but sheer uninterrupted happiness is a terrible idea if that's your reason for getting married. And I do adore him. I love him and I'm grateful for him. He's the love of my life, and his character is so good that it makes mine better by sheer proximity. But he still forces me up mountains that I don't want to climb, even if I am better for the effort. Enjoyment is not the highest good. Happiness is not the highest good. Pain is not your enemy. And I know you just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. But if we just want to be happy and nothing more, then we will have plans, but not purpose. We will be pacified, but not satisfied. And we will never rest. We will simply numb out our exhaustion with entertainment. Happiness is the great bait and switch, and we chase it so compulsively that there is no other word for it than worship. But the sacrifice it demands is nothing less than to sever from yourself the parts of you that experience sadness, loneliness, and grief. And so while we spill blood at its altar to avoid our pain, we would do well to notice that the blood is ours. God doesn't demand our allegiance for his own sake, but because he knows that our allegiance to anything or anyone else will be the death of us. I don't think the argument here is so much should we get to decide how we live. We already can. You can decide how you live. I can decide how I live. I can choose how I want to live, but what if my choices are killing me? 
And, and I, know, I know there's somebody here and, and you are listening to all this stuff about living within God's guidelines and you just wanna bolt for the door because it was everything that you had just to get yourself to church today and not even because you wanna be here but because you didn't wanna fight with her about it. And, 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 and the idea of having to do more, to be more, is exhausting to the point of despair. And if that's what it takes to get to heaven, then I guess I just don't have it in me. Listen, people who know they don't have it in them are as close to God as any of us will ever be. If you read ahead, you know that the Israelites don't quite pull it off. They can't maintain faithfulness to this covenant. God knew then, and presumably still does, that we don't have it in us. And yet, he affirms his faithfulness to us. Just two chapters later, Yahweh raises his hand to heaven and swears to rescue us, to to make atonement for us all, because in the end, it's God's fidelity that must triumph, not ours. And that is good news to everyone who doesn't have it in them because he promises he has it in him. No matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've messed up, he'll restore us, he'll bring us back, and not because we've suddenly learned how to live rightly, but because he made a promise and he intends to keep it even if it costs him his life. And the only thing that we have to have in us is him. So I'm not telling you that your eternal salvation hangs in the balance of your obedience to Old Testament law. If you've invited Jesus in, you are bought and paid for. That's the gospel. I'm simply suggesting that there is much death to be lived through in the land of the living. As anyone who is driven on East Colonial Drive will freely confirm to you, One thing about this passage, it's very interesting to me. This is not the first time that Israel has been on the bank of the Jordan River. God brought them here once before. About 40 years ago, Yahweh had basically kicked down the, the door of Pharaoh's palace, reached in and scooped them out of Egypt from slavery. Through this series of supernatural interventions, he leads them out, he takes them to the foot of Mount Sinai and he confirms his, his, his covenant with them. He says, I'm gonna bless you so that you can be a blessing. I'm gonna deliver the promised land to you. Don't be afraid, I will go before you, I will fight for you. You you just let me be God and you be my people and we're gonna make it. And for Israel, it would have only been an 11 day walk from the foot of Mount Sinai to the place where they would enter the promised land, but there on that first trip to the Jordan, they decided not to cross. They took one look at the inhabitants, Anakites, they called them giants, and they decided that this wasn't worth the fight. Even though God had just supernaturally intervened for them literally that same year, even though he had won this enormous battle over Egypt, they decided it's not worth the fight. How often do we stop short of the promised land because we're afraid of the fight? You've drifted since the kids came along and now you feel like you're just roommates. And you know it's possible for someone somewhere, you know it's possible to desire her again. To desire your life together again. But to get there, you're gonna have to make the time and the space between diapers and bills and work trips and it doesn't feel worth the fight. You wanna stop being so mad at him for what he did. 
And you know that your bitterness can't really hurt him, but the thought of letting go of it feels like letting him off the hook. And you've met people, you know it's possible, people who have suffered far worse for far longer and they're still filled with joy and generosity, you know it's possible, but then you remember how many times a day you're gonna have to let it go again and again and it doesn't seem worth the fight. You wanna come out of hiding, but the idea of confessing to another human being the things you've done, the thoughts you've had doesn't feel worth the fight. Listen, I, I understand. I have been there on the bank of that river with you looking into the promised land like a fairy tale that will never happen to me. I know what it's like to want something so badly that you're afraid to pray for it. I know why you're scared, but don't, please don't let a journey that takes 11 days last 40 years for you too. Set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. My brother Jason had been sober for seven years before his relapse, and even afterward he had this incredibly strong relationship with God. He loved Jesus as someone who understands the depth of his own failures. He knew his debts were too steep for him to pay on his own, so he clung to the, to the knowledge that Jesus would forgive him that he was already paid for. The night before he died, we had this delightful conversation about C.S. Lewis books and marriage counseling and how happy he was that his wife had taken him back and the phone broke up for a second so I could just hear his voice without actually understanding the words and all I could think was, gosh, we've got to do something about that Pittsburgh accent before it gets any worse. I'm so grateful for that conversation. And not just because I got to talk to him one last time, but because of the content. I, my, my best understanding of my best interpretation of the scriptures is that once the line of faith is crossed, nothing can snatch us from God's hand. So I'm grateful for this conversation because even if I don't believe Jason's salvation was ever in peril, it could easily have been in question for those he left behind. And that conversation is a sweet reminder to me that while I'm glad for our sakes, Jason made his peace with God before he left us. God made his peace with Jason a long time ago. So I don't grieve his absence. I do miss him. But what I grieve are the wounds that he had no control over. I grieve the lies he chose to believe. I grieve the hopelessness that made him feel like any escape from it seemed reasonable. I grieve the sins that he chose to cling to that eventually clung to him. Listen, there are choices that will lead you to your death long before anything will take your life. Don't choose death. When he first got sober, my brother told me that our sobriety is only as strong as our memory. And I remember looking at him and thinking, like, is this really my brother? Is this really Jason talking to me? And then moments after that profound insight, he rolled onto his side so as to more efficiently pass gas in my general direction, and I realized, yes, this, this is Jason. So perhaps I didn't take it as seriously then, but now I find it to be very sound advice. What's killing you? And before you sink your teeth into that forbidden fruit again, will you stop and remember the bitter aftertaste.
There's a really easy way to choose life, to help yourself choose life, and that's by getting around other people who are choosing it with you. You are capable of choosing well. It says it right here. This command I am giving you today is not too difficult for you to understand. It is not beyond your reach. No, the message is close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart so that you may obey it. Living within God's design is not supernatural. Every one of us can do it. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying that it's simple. Holiness is nothing more than a series of small steps in the right direction, but we were meant to take those steps together. And God's creatures will always work according to their design. So if you're not in a Summit Connect group, do not leave here without talking to someone on staff about that. And if you feel like you need a tonic a little stronger, regroup starts on Monday. Please come and join us. In just a moment, you're gonna see a video of some folks who have walked through that process, and uh, they're gonna use this word sobriety. And I just, wanna, I just wanna point out that while that does include drugs and alcohol, it goes far beyond that. Television, food, sex, relationships, smartphones, all of our idols, sobriety is simply the absence of worshiping something that doesn't give you life back. So if you wanna take that step but it seems terrifying to you, then hear some encouragement from my friends.